dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. Does God expect us to lead out of our strengths or out of our weaknesses? It seems like both are good options. In the first letter of St. Paul to St. Timothy, chapter 3, we read St. Timothy give us a list of the qualifications that God wants to see from his bishops and his deacons, qualifications which could be applied to any of our positions of leadership. Is this an indication that God wants us to be qualified for leadership? If so, how do we get that qualification? All right, thanks everybody for being back with us again. We're looking at chapter three of St. Paul's first letter to St. Timothy, where St. Paul is basically giving a letter to his closest companion, the one to whom he leaves really a spiritual legacy in leadership. And it, this letter is just rife with amazing lessons for us that we can apply, be it in our businesses or in our families or in the groups that we lead in civil society. Whatever, every time we step up as a leader, as a Christian, we need to remember that the Word of God gives us a lot of training and insight into the things that we're going to need to successfully do that. I mean, just think of all the things that St. Paul did in his life of leadership, from the traveling to the logistics involved in the traveling to the political intrigue that he went under to the, the management that he had to establish not to mention the finances, his collections that he gathered, the persecutions, the, the intrigue, the communications problems. I mean, he wrote letters, preached in public, spoke to individuals. He, he did it all. And he leaves behind his lessons in leadership to St. Timothy and to St. Titus in these two letters that are just magnificent for us. They're called the pastoral epistles because they're the, the epistles that St. Paul writes pastorally to the shepherds of these fledgling Christian communities. So when he writes 1 Timothy, he's writing to his successor on how that successor should lead. And in the third chapter, he puts this, he says, this, this saying is trustworthy. Now the word in Greek is pistos, which is the same word as faith. And so you could say this saying is worthy of belief, but pistos means literally that it's able to be built against. It's something you can lean up against. This saying is something you could put weight on, in other words. And he says this, if anyone aspires to the office of the episcopo, all right, that means the overseer, literally, or the bishop, he desires a noble task. So the very first thing to say is, is this affirmation that St. Paul gives, that it is a noble thing to aspire to this, the task of being a leader. It's almost counterintuitive to what you would imagine today because most of us would say it's a noble thing to say you're never going to lead. Right? It's, it seems much nobler for us to back away from positions of leadership today out of, out of a sense of humility, you know, out of a false sense of humility, but like where you say, who am I in order to lead? Who am I to do these great things? 
And so people would then clap for you and say, very good, we're glad that you did nothing, right? Because by doing nothing, you've allowed the room for the people that we want to do something to actually be able to do it. And a lot of times what they'll do is not at all the same quality or height or depth that you would do or that God would do through you. But in fact, because no one else is leading, someone is free to take the stage. And we live this out in a constant drama in our society and in our church today. And yet here's St. Paul saying, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or to bishop, he desires a noble task. Almost like St. Paul is saying, it's okay to aspire to leadership. As a matter of fact, when you do so, you're aspiring to something noble. And a person who aspires to noble things is a person whose heart's in the right place. I mean, imagine if you weren't aspiring for noble things, what would you be aspiring for? And the answer is ignoble things, right? Poor things, things that don't really matter. Now think about it. Is that what you want to live for? Things that don't matter? I think St. Timothy here is being told something profound by St. Paul and for all of us. That leadership is something essential for our world and for our church. And we need the people who will dare it. Dare to claim the culture. Dare to claim the position. Where have the heroes gone? Who has extinguished the noble fires of aspiration that formerly burned in the hearts of people? Christ didn't come to the earth to find people sluggish. He came to the earth to call us to follow him. And this, is, this requires the aspiration towards noble things. St. Paul here references. He goes on, he says, Therefore, an overseer, episcopo, again, right? So to the one who sees above, overseer, literally, or the bishop, must be beyond reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Uh, he must not be a recent convert, he, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall in the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace with, into the snare of the devil. Okay, this, all this is first, verses 1 to 7 here, 1 Timothy 3. And it kind of sounds to us almost like a job description. I mean, if you were to say qualifications for the candidate, you could put all of these down there. He must not do this. He must be this. He, and you have a whole list of these qualifications. And it almost begs the question, how is it that St. Paul would have the right to put qualifications down for a ministry? Isn't it true that God doesn't call the qualified, but qualifies the called? Isn't it, God that, isn't it true that God can do anything out of nothing and that we shouldn't therefore be afraid to simply stand forth with the nothingness that we are in order that he can work his all through us? Yes, this is all true. That's why it's puzzling that we then read here where it's St. Paul saying, if you're going to serve as an overseer, you should have these qualities. It's almost like a contradiction, but it's not. It's a both and. And it's almost always this way with God, where we look at an either or, he sees a both and. Of course, God can do absolutely anything with anyone. And yet most of the time, he does not. Most of the time, he prefers to work with us by preparing us for the tasks that we're going to achieve. And this is a very important point because 
Sometimes people think that all that they've done in their life, if it's not done exclusively and explicitly for God, is done in vain. But that's not true. I mean, you think of the objection people could say, oh, well, I'm a lawyer or I'm a doctor, but I did it for the, for the money. Or I ended up becoming a businessman and, and therefore I did it for the money. And therefore, like, my heart is not true. What I really long for is ministry or love or work for the poor. And, and that's very true. You can do all those things. And it's a fine thing to aspire to them. But why wouldn't you also see the greatness that you've developed as being a fit instrument that God could very well use to accomplish his plan? Why is it always a seeming like denial of the excellence of humanity to augment the glory of the grace of Christ? I don't think that the denial of humanity is the sole way to glorify grace. There's another way to glorify grace, and that's to employ it in the talents and the skill set and the excellence that God has given to you by his grace and in his grace for his glory. In other words, we don't just serve God out of our poverty. We can also serve him out of our excellence. And the more aware you are of your own excellences, the more aptly you can put yourself at his service by using them for the, his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. This is Father Nathan. I know that there are many ways to learn leadership, and that there's many great methods out there that are even put forth by Catholics. But here at the St. John Leadership Institute, we actually have a unique way of forming leaders. It's called Audeo. That's Latin for I dare. At our campus in Denver, Catholics can learn an authentically Catholic way to become a leader. Check us out on our website, stjohnleadershipinstitute.org. So let's take a look in 1 Timothy 3 at what qualities exactly are looked at for those belonging to an overseer, a bishop. And here St. Paul tells St. Timothy, I mean, the list is a list of what he must not have and a list of what he must have. I think that's, first of all, very interesting to see Scripture employing this way of listing qualities. When we make our own job descriptions, a lot of times we simply say the qualities that they must have. But isn't it interesting that God's careful to say what he also must not have? He says, for example, he must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. He must not be a drunkard, not be violent. He must not be quarrelsome and must not be a lover of money. That's very interesting because in all of those, if you look at the knots, especially the drunkards, the violence, the quarrelsome, and the lover of money, you have four things, all of which denote a self-indulgence. And when you go back and you read, for example, St. Thomas Aquinas on his, in his treatise on the king, Aquinas will say that the difference between a king and a tyrant is that the tyrant uses his power for self-aggrandizement whereas a king uses it to benefit his subjects. This means that St. Paul here is, is laying out for us a fundamental truth, consonant with human history. If you're going to lead, you have to curb self-indulgence and curb it in every way that you can. The sign of someone who's incapable of true, authentic Christian leadership is that they'll be self-serving. And it gives four ways, right? Quarreling, violence, drunkenness, and love of money. 
And on the contrary, the virtues that he lists out are all about service. He must be the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled. In other words, able to go beyond ourselves at the service of those whom we are called to lead. This really fits in well with this notion that, that leadership is actually an act of service. It's when you choose to lead a group, you place your own needs and your own preoccupations under the needs and preoccupations of those whom you are called to lead. Because by leading, you sacrifice your time, your energy, your thoughts, your talents to help other people to raise up to that level. I think this is interesting. A lot of times we think that if we are a good leader, everything will flow smoothly. I have to say, if you have been a good leader, things will flow smoothly. But when you first take over leadership, don't expect things to flow smoothly. The fact is, they need you to lead so that they will flow smoothly. Which means that when you begin your leadership, expect a wild river. Expect all kinds of problems. Expect that you need to stay up late at night and burn the midnight midnight oil. You need to create the policies and procedures that you expect your people to follow. And a lot of people can get frustrated with that or be disappointed in that or say that this isn't the way that it should be. But leadership looked at as an act of service, as an act of education, means that it's a messy thing. Leadership is messy. Isn't that amazing? And St. Paul here saying, we need people who are able to enter into that mess. That's why he says, husband of one wife, uh, governing their household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. In other words, you need to be someone who's well-practiced in this ability to dedicate yourself humbly to bringing order and communion. And if you do that in a way without self-aggrandizement, well, then you're actually doing it in a way which shows that you have the qualities necessary to lead as a bishop here, but I think any leader of an organization, it follows. And he goes on with the list of the qualifications for deacons, and the very first quality that he gives for a deacon is he says, the deacon must be dignified, not double-tongued. Now, this is the only spot in the whole New Testament where this word is used, and in the other places in antiquity where we find the word, it means repeating, meaning that St. Paul says that the deacons must be a person of dignity, not someone who repeats what he's heard, meaning spreading rumors. And when you think about that, I think that that's such a powerful image for what God is asking for his leaders. The very first quality St. Paul gives for a deacon is that they be someone who minds the truth in their speech. In other words, the opposite of good leadership for St. Paul is someone who repeats carelessly what they've heard and passes it along without bringing it to the judgment of the truth. Now, you just kind of wonder about that. Why is that so important? Why is knowledge of truth important for organizational leadership? It goes back to what we said at the beginning, that the difference between a tyrant and a king is that a king will use his power at the service of his subjects and a tyrant will use his power in order to to grow his own personal influence or for his own advantage. So caring about the truth becomes an essential quality because when you care about the truth, you set yourself underneath a standard of judgment that keeps your own actions in line and your own life subject to a judgment by others. If you discard the truth, 
you then become the arbiter of your own goodness and you become a danger to, to others because you could define your actions as being good when in fact they're not. And, and you could be saying things that you think are true when in fact they're false. And so St. Paul says a leader has to be someone who clings to what is dignified. Not addiction to much wine, not greedy, not for dishonest gain. Again, he puts not only what the person should be, but also what they must not be. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and so forth. He goes through this beautiful list here and all of these qualities have a commonality to them. They are all qualities that require the person to be a servant in order to lead. I think this is one of the hallmarks of Christian leadership to view power and position given to authority as the ability to serve the people entrusted to you. I have been given power so that I might serve you, strength so that I might heal you, joy so that I might enliven you, intelligence so that I might lead you. And this has a natural consequence twofold. Number one, I as a leader need to accept to have those things. I need to accept to allow myself to say I am in a position to lead. I am in a superior, an, uh, an elevated position over those whom I lead. Otherwise, I don't have anything to give. If I unduly accentuate humility in leadership to, at, to the detriment of magnanimity, well then I won't in fact bring my people anywhere or assert myself well in their regard. On the contrary, I'll hide myself because I find myself worthy of being hidden. This is a big problem. I have to accept greatness in order to put greatness at the service of my people. And on the other hand, it means that my people need to accept to be served by their leader. I think too often we just allow ourselves to, to treat our leaders almost as if they were our enemies. You know, that because they have power and prestige and because they have, you know, a certain amount of, of authority, we seek to oppose them as being anti-Christian. Isn't that funny? Because when our Lord was among us, he washed the disciples' feet and he said, do you know what I, your Lord and master, have done for you? If I, who am Lord and master, have done this for you, then you too must wash one another's feet. And so even our Lord himself, whose humility cannot be doubted, actually showed himself well aware that he was the leader and the king. And he asked his disciples to acknowledge that in order that he could serve them. When you deny the, uh, the role of the authority, you're not effectively following. And when you don't effectively follow, the, the, the leadership is undone. Both sides are needed here and both sides are called for by these lists of virtues in chapter three. This is Father Nathan. I'd like to offer an invitation for all you listening between the ages of 22 and 40 to consider daring something great for Christ this year. Right now, the St. John Leadership Institute in Denver, Colorado is recruiting for our new class. Come and live in Denver with a community of your peers. Form your own business. Earn a master's degree in any subject. Learn what it takes to lead today. Check us out, stjohnleadershipinstitute.org. So 1 Timothy chapter 3 gives us lists of the virtues that St. Paul describes as being necessary for those who will lead the Christian community. I think we can take those virtues and apply them pretty much to anything, but even more precisely than those virtues, 
there's the question at hand of whether or not we need to be qualified in order to serve God. I mean, on the one hand, you have the fact that St. Peter was just a fisherman and he was made to be the first pope. So you could say he didn't really have the qualities that he needed in order to achieve that. Or you have the fact that that Mary was made the mother of God. You can't have the qualities necessary to be the mother of God. Or you could say that St. Joseph the carpenter was made the foster father of God. There seems to be like a stretch, in other words, between what we are called to do and who we are. I mean, look at St. Paul and what he did. He he was a persecutor of the household of God and he became its largest and most qualified evangelizer. And so you say, well, God loves, in other words, to ask us to do things we're not good at. And so this leads a lot of Christians to then almost champion their inability to boast in their incapacity. Almost like, well, God will use me anyway, and I'm just going to be, therefore, someone without qualities or without capacities, and I'll resist anyone who judges me upon them. And I think that that's because that's a misreading of what's going on in Scripture. When Jesus calls St. Peter the fisherman to become a pope, let's remember that he's calling a business leader to become the pope. A man who knew how to manage, how to budget, how to take care of the goods of others, how to look over time. He actually was leading not only a small business, but he had multiple boats, partners in the business, hired men working for him, multiple nets. St. Peter, in other words, was running an actual business. And he chose that man and asked him to stretch that to then govern the household of God. Or St. Paul, even though he was persecuting the, the household of God, he was doing it out of excessive zeal for God. And Jesus took that excess, excessive zeal and that strength of character, which was enough to lead a whole group of soldiers, although he himself was only a young man, and put him at his service, proclaiming his kingdom. Or if you go back to any of the apostles, you'll find that the story is not that God simply creates qualities out of nothingness and calls us in our inadequacies into his service. He calls us beyond our inadequacies to stretch the qualities and the talents that we do have to put them to a higher cause than we ever thought possible. That God stretch us is one thing, but that God ask us to do something for which we're not adapt. This is indeed a very rare scenario. Even, even when Moses could not speak to Pharaoh, God supplied Aaron so that Aaron could speak for Pharaoh. But he didn't say to Moses, go ahead and stutter in front of Pharaoh and this will somehow be adequate, right? No, he equipped him for his service in the same way that he ordained Aaron for his priesthood. In the same way that Our Lady, although completely incapable of being the mother of God, nevertheless offered a life of virtue, of resistance against all stain of sin, of total surrender by saying yes to his call. So there is a a both and here. And I think that that's very important for us. God will indeed equip us for what we lack in his service. But that equipping requires a cooperation on our part a cooperation to aspire to that noble task of leadership, a cooperation to sacrifice, to acquire the skills necessary, to grow where it's necessary, in order that then he can use us as a free and fitting instrument. At the heart of it, a lot of you don't want to be God's instrument. 
You want God, you want to just kind of quietly live your life and have God invisibly doing things through you. But that's a less of a glory than when you cooperate freely with his intention. When you surrender yourselves to God's operation, God's action, God's influence in this world, freely and knowingly, you actually can make a bigger impact with God according to his design. And you glorify the creator even more than blindly pretending that somehow, despite you, God did his work. God does his work despite our inadequacies, absolutely, and our inefficiencies and our insufficiencies. But he also does his work because of us, meaning through those very virtues with which he equips us for his service. And this means we need to change our vision of being his instrument and realize that it's okay to become qualified, to be humble enough to grow where you don't think that you are any good. I think God challenges us, in other words, who are in leadership, to really take seriously the role that he's given us. Because if I'm really in charge, then I need to curb my tongue. I need to watch my anger. I need to plan my projects. I need to report things consistently. I need to apologize where I've made people sad and so forth. I need to grow in my virtues precisely because I am God's instrument and not say because I'm God's instrument, it doesn't matter what I do. This is the great lesson Paul's telling Timothy. He's saying, be careful of the men that you choose and test them because their charge will test them. When you look at some of the consequences that he gives, you know, for example, that that the person in verse seven must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil, right? So he's saying there's a consequence for not being well prepared. And you need to tell these people and look for the virtue in them. And I'd like to just say God is looking at the virtue in you, your education, your grit, your dreams, your dedication to your spouse, your generosity towards your children, your love for God that you have, your love for your country. All of those things are actually signs of God's blessing in your life that he wants you to bestow on those whom you will lead. He never gives blessings in vain. He always has an intention for what he does. And he intends you to be his instruments conduits of his mercy and of his grace, his blessings in the world. And so he has blessed you so that through his blessing, you might in turn bless others, true servants and true leaders of the greatest and highest of all kings. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at info at stjohninstitute.org. That's info at stjohninstitute.org. And don't forget to subscribe to premium video content to form, unite, and inspire you at Eagle Eye Pro on our website, eagleeyeministries.org. That's eagleeyeministries.org.